1: The people of Sydney who can speak of my work without a smile are very scarce. I know that success is dead sure to come, and therefore do not waste time and words in trying to convince unbelievers. Is a quote from Lawrence Hargrave, the Australian engineer and aeronautical pioneer, whose efforts contributed to the development and invention of the first piloted aircrafts. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our guest today, the holder of a multitude of world aviation records, whose work not only brought smiles to people's faces in Australia, but all over the world. Our guest is entrepreneur, adventurer, philanthropist and 1986 Australian of the Year, Dick Smith AC. As a businessman, Dick is widely known for founding Dick Smith Electronics, the Australian Geographic magazine and Dick Smith Foods. He's also an aviator who has flown around the world five times, including the first solo helicopter circumnavigation. In 2015, Dick was awarded a Companion of the Order of Australia for eminent service to the community as a benefactor of a range of not-for-profit and conservation organisations through support for major fundraising initiatives for humanitarian and social welfare programs to medical research and the visual arts and to aviation. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Scotland, Japan and the United States, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blendon Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In a lively conversation, Dick shares of us a remarkable story. His adventure that embodies his entrepreneurial flair and deep desire to make a difference. We hear of his enthralling aviation exploits where he has been open fired upon, braved hurricane force winds in a balloon and weathered nasty conditions to make a timely appointment with Prince Charles. Looking back, Dick imparts to us the lessons he learned, his hopes for future generations and the realization of how lucky we are today. So sit back and enjoy the Lottery of Life. Dick, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Dick, easy question to start with. If you could change one thing in the world, what would it be and why?
0: If I could change one thing in the world, it would be to get the United Nations to have a policy on population. Mm -hmm. Because the greatest problem we've got at the moment is the world's population increases at 80 million per year. That's over three times the population of Australia. And there's there's probably a billion people on this earth already who are very poor and to end up going where at the rate of our population growth we're going to go from 7 billion now to 11 billion at the end of this century and not many people think that's a sensible number so i'd like to have the united nations with a population policy which it doesn't have
1: and do you think we're actually having a real debate in australia on this serious matter
0: no virtually no debate at all eight Mm. out of ten people would agree with me that we should have a population policy just in Australia alone, yep. but we don't. And you've got to understand that the business community wants eternal growth. The yep. reason I'm wealthy and the most people in the business community are wealthy is we've had incredible growth in both population and in consumerism, and that's all made us very wealthy. The problem is it can't go on forever. It's it's a finite world.
1: Yeah, but it's also a fairly simple model, isn't it, um, Dick? I bring an extra person in, they come in, they get a credit card, they borrow they go and spend the money, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not necessarily creating creating product. So that's quite that's a lazy growth, isn't it?
0: It's not something that's sustainable, unfortunately. Yes, it's been very successful since the Industrial Revolution, the last 150 years. We've all benefited enormously from our material growth, but it can't go on forever. And one day we've got to have a plan where we live in balance like everything else in nature does.
1: So what are you going to do about it, Dick? How's the community or well, how is the Australian public going to start thinking a little bit more? There's nothing.
0: There's nothing I can do about it. Most people agree with me that we should have a population policy for the world and also for Australia, but there's nothing we can do about it until some collapse occurs. We're not that sensible to be able to sacrifice now for something that may happen in the future. So I don't think anything will change until there's some enormous collapse. You end up with just so many poor people that it's no no longer can be accepted.
1: And for the next generation, those coming through, you can just buy their... Their first apartment, paying a lot, an average of a million dollars in Sydney, and probably be that in Melbourne before we know it. Uh, it's pretty hard yards.
0: And that's another problem. I mean, I was talking about the whole world, but and when it comes to Australia, we have twenty five. What is it? Twenty seven million people. And yes, we can grow without any doubt. But the growth rate we had before the COVID crisis was about three percent per year, and uh, that was that would take us to a hundred million people at the end of this century when our grandchildren will still be alive. And not many people think 100 million is sensible for an arid country like Australia.
1: So who's listening, Dick? Who's listening in in those who can change. Who's actually listening? Most
0: most of the population listen, but the people who are not listening are the billionaires. We have 100 billionaires in Australia, and the greed is just unlimited. They just want more money. And so they're very powerful politically. And so if any politician was... Stupid enough to say, Look, we have to live in balance, we have to stop the population growth. They would definitely lose all the support of the billionaires and wealthy people like me. And so they're not going, the politicians aren't going to mention it.
1: Okay, so you've done your numbers, obviously. What is the sensible or sustainable sort of numbers you're talking about over the next 20, 30, and 50 years? Yes, what
0: I would like to see, what I'd like to see is I'm pro immigration, always have been. It's what's made Australia such a fantastic country. But I'd like to see it go back to the long-term average it was before John Howard, which was about 80,000 per year. And if we go back to 80,000 per year, our population will level off just under 30 million. And I think that's a sensible number. Anymore, I believe, you're just going to have more and more of the incredible crowding. You're going to have young couples, let alone buying a house. They won't be able to buy a separate house. They'll be crammed like termites in a huge termite mound, 100-storey-high mini uh, a residential building. And I just think that's terrible. When I was young, a house in Sydney cost $30,000. My wife and myself had $8,000 deposit. It had a backyard. It had a cabby house for our kids as the girls grew up. And we shouldn't be going backwards. We should be going forwards. Houses should be getting cheaper, not more expensive.
1: Okay. But if I was going to extend your argument then, uh, my old man was a civil engineer and he was quite passionate about this he was incredibly frustrated by everyone turning up to Australia, either living in Sydney or Melbourne predominantly, and no thought to, for the bush or the bringing that along and building centres outside of the major hubs. Now, is that something you've also thought about? If we're going to increase, as you say, but are we going to be smarter about how we increase?
0: No, it's very difficult. The reason we don't people don't move to country towns is there are no jobs there. And so that's the problem where, and, and I, I can't see that really changing. Most people want the advantages of a city. They want to be able to go and see the latest show that was on in Broadway last year wants to be well they want to be able to see it in Australia somewhere and that's not going to go to small country towns it's going to go to cities so if our population increases it will be basically city cities that will increase the population because we're such an arid country we're unlikely to have large cities inland like say Colorado in the USA that's unlikely for us the United States has the Rocky Mountains so they have the huge Mississippi River Basin, and then they also have the Colorado River, which gives incredible amount of water and allows cities to exist and live. We don't have a Rocky Mountains. We have flat desert outback, and so we just don't have the amount of water that we'd need to have lots of big internal cities.
1: Now, Dick, aviator, filmmaker, explorer, businessman, and publisher, how do you actually see yourself?
0: I see myself as a car radio installer. Okay. and uh, I've, I've just written my autobiography and uh, it in, in sort of let me examine my life quite a bit when I sat down and wrote it. Yep. I wrote it last year in the lockdown, and I've really been a failure. The thing is that I really wanted to do, which was to become an electronics engineer. I just didn't have the the aptitude to do that, the academic skills, and I have no qualifications. In fact, the only qualification I have is a – baden powell award from the boy scouts and i'm proud to have that i would have loved to have got an engineering degree but my brain didn't allow that
1: well actually i, I think you even had one other stumble earlier than that didn't you didn't you want to become a park ranger and you got knocked back for, for doing that as well
0: exactly right when, what happened was i loved radio as a kin i used to build crystal sets oh, and yes. then two valve radios back in the old valve days And then I realised that I wasn't good academically and so I couldn't become an engineer. But my other main love was the out of doors. I loved bushwalking and the times with the scouts. And so I decided I'd become a park ranger in the national parks. But two things happened. First of all, I asked advice and (laughs) a friend of mine who was a park ranger said, no, the bureaucracy would kill you. But also at the same time, they wanted their park rangers to have a degree for some incredible reason probably the same today. And uh, and I wasn't going to get a degree, so that ruled me out. So I ended up, as it happened, starting my own business and doing far better than I ever thought would ever happen.
1: You reckon we place too much uh, focus and um, weight on seeing little names and signs at the end of someone's name and sense of degrees and education?
0: Yes, I think we do. And uh, my parents used to say to each other, whatever will happen to Dick, they were quite worried. Oh, really? And I remember... I did three years of French at North Sydney Technical High School. It was a compulsory subject, and I got three percent in the intermediate certificate <laughs> in my French exam. Right. So I was absolutely hopeless. But I still did okay. And so I go and give talks to schools from time to time, and I say, "Look, get as many qualifications as you can, because that's good insurance." And uh, but if you're if you're pretty dumb like me, you can't get qualifications you can still do okay in Australia.
1: Did you have confidence in yourself? If you're getting marks like that, and as you say, your parents are getting worried and particularly at, at that age, where you got kids would be pretty harsh in the school backyard there. How were you mentally and physically in the sense of self-confidence? Cause that's hard.
0: I was quite depressed. I thought I was done. I really was depressed when I was young and I really? thought I'm absolutely hopeless academically. And I was more surprised than anyone when I did okay. So what was the game changer? One of the game changers was I got a girlfriend, and she said to me for the first time, you're not dumb, Dick, you're quite bright. And I thought, oh, well, no one's ever said that to me before. And uh, she was uh, quite bright. She was at North Sydney Girls High School and ended up going to university. And I realised, oh, maybe I wasn't as dumb as I thought I was, and I managed to get my leaving certificate. Now, that was the the last thing I got. I went to one lecture at university and realised I wasn't going to cope with that. And so basically since then, I've just been self-taught.
1: So how did the idea of going into business start?
0: Right. The idea of going into business was interesting. I should explain that my plan was to have a business with two or three people working for me. I lived on Sydney's North Shore. And in Chatswood, there was a car radio business called Howard Car Radio. (laughs) Uh, Les Howard had about, I think, three people working for him. And I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great to own a business like that? And at the time, I was working for a company that sold taxi two way radios. And they decided that they would no longer service the two way radios in the Manly Cabs. And that gave me my chance with $610 and some borrowed money from my scoutmaster. I opened a little business called Dick Smith Electronics, fixing Manly Cab radios and selling car radios. And it all started there. Now, what did mum and
1: dad say about that?
0: Well, they were a bit worried about me selling my own business because dad had started his own business and failed. It went broke and it took years to pay back the debts. And so they were quite worried. But at the time, I was, what, 23 years of age. I was living at home with my parents. I just got engaged to my present wife, Pip. And so I didn't really have any great overheads. I paid board at home with my parents. And so I knew that the key, and I put this in my book, in starting a business is to have very low overheads. And I had the lowest overheads possible. The rent, I think, was about $20 a week. I had one other person working for me at $60 a week, and I paid myself $40 a week. And so I had very low overheads and just got to fixing two-way radios for the cabs and then started selling car radios.
1: Now, just out of interest, Dick, everyone talks about having that original business plan and executing that strategy. Was there any business plan? Was there any strategy?
0: No, there wasn't. Look, I was so naive. I mean, I was I, I was unqualified. I'd never done economics or anything like that. And uh, I start this little business that in my wildest dream is going to have three or four people working for me. It ended up doing a billion dollars turnover, of course, that business that I started. Yep. And so it showed that what I was good at was running a business. And, uh, and, and those good things are, first of all, I asked advice and then I was use common sense to decide which was the correct advice. I also was good at surrounding myself with capable people. I feel a bit bad about all the money I've made because it's all been made by other people for me. I'm still not the brightest bloke you could ever think of, but I was really good at picking good people and motivating them to work for me. And that's where I made my money.
1: Okay. So how the big mystery here. So how do you pick good people and why do I want to go and work with you if I'm so good?
0: Yeah. Well, this is the big thing. And uh, picking good people, first of all, I normally found the third person I gave the job to was the good one. So I had to be tough enough to get rid of the first two. And that's really hard. But uh, I I couldn't say I was good at picking the good person. That's a very difficult job. But what I was good at is realizing whether they're any good or not within the first six months. And if they weren't telling them, look, it's not working, you'll have to go. And so I'd persevere until I got good people. And, I ended up both with Dick Smith Electronics and Australian Geographic having really fantastic people who made me a lot of money.
1: What are you looking for, Dick and people? Well, you've got to have someone who's
0: got who's get, get up and go, who's a hard worker, who's prepared to take leadership and to ask advice, and uh, someone with lots of common sense. I've never found that I've been successful with people with qualifications. It's interesting, mm. at one stage I thought, oh, if I get someone with an economics degree, they'll really know how to run the business. But they had absolutely no idea. And I always kept the business principles really simple. In other words, keep the outgoing, as the overheads as low as possible, and then work down hard and have really good margins. I always, in fixing car radios, of course, you were selling labour, yep. and that's a pretty high margin item. But then when I started selling electronic components, I made sure I had a 50% profit margin, i.e. 100% markup, and then I work to keep that margin there all the time and then have as lower overheads as possible.
1: Now, you talked about advice. Are people, in your experience, willing to give it?
0: Yes, absolutely fantastic. And uh, when I started Dick Smith Electronics, I didn't know much about selling electronic components. And I noticed in the electronics magazines that there was a company called Lafayette Electronics in the United States. That had a great big thick catalogue and was selling electronic components all around the world. And so I wrote to them and I said, "My name's Dick Smith. I've got this little business with three or four people working for me, uh, but I love your catalogue and could I come and ask you some advice?" And amazingly, the vice president wrote back and said, "Oh, why not? Yes, you know, if ever you're in the vicinity, call in and see us." And so I bought the cheapest air ticket around the world and arrived in New York and. Uh, Caught the train up to Lafayette Electronics, who in those stage, I think, had about 300 shops around the United States and was uh, turning over hundreds of millions of dollars. And they let me into the place. And because I was so enthusiastic and said how impressed I was with them, they basically told me how they run their business because they had no plans on coming to Australia and uh, they told me, I asked them what the profit margin was. I even asked things like, well, what percentage do you spend on marketing and advertising? And I remember they said 6%. Really? And uh, and also, what percentage were staff costs? And they told me 12%. But they did tell me that, well, you've got to have that 50% profit margin. And so I basically copied what they were doing in the United States. I came back to Australia and I copied it and and actually did quite well.
1: Now, you're also a big believer in fun, aren't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. To me, the fun thing started that I realised that I didn't have a lot of money for advertising. Yeah, I know. I looked and, at some uh, of your adverts.
1: And I looked for. for, for yeah. I, I couldn't stop laughing for a while, Dick. They were pretty good in those days, but oh, yeah, I look well, back for sentimental of, reasons. Geez.
0: Yes. One of the because I, it was called Dick's with Electronics. We always had a lot of fun. I bought our Dickhead matches, of course, at one stage. But uh, we had a van that we used to drive around Sydney when we had a number of shops. We had a van and we called the van the Electronic Dick. I know. And uh, that van, people would tell us, oh, you know, Dick, we see your vans all around Sydney. They're everywhere. In fact, it was only one van. But um, the Electronic Dick van gave us a lot of publicity and so we are always having fun. I towed a fake iceberg into Sydney Harbour, which got publicity all around the world on April Fool's Day, and that gave me lots of free publicity, which meant, I didn't have to spend money on advertising.
1: Now, what made you do that? Because I you know Richard Branson used to do things like that. So, was there anybody you followed or looked up and thought, "That's a you know that gimmick or whatever it's going to be, that stunt?"
0: The Antarctic flight. So, I came up with that idea because I wanted to see Antarctica. These were daily flights to Antarctica, and I saw these huge icebergs, and there'd been discussions about towing an iceberg to Saudi Arabia. The scientists had talked about doing this and uh, using it for water. So I told the media, I said, I'm going to tow an iceberg to Sydney and I'm going to cut it up into ice cubes and call them Dixicles and I'm going to sell them for 10 cents each and these are going to people's drinks. Now, of course, it was a joke, but the media believed me and they kept saying, when's the iceberg coming? When's the iceberg coming? And uh, one day, one of my staff members, Jerry Nolan, came to me and he said, Dick, do you know what's what's next Saturday? And I said, No, what's next Saturday? He said, It's April Fool's Day. Why don't we tow a fake iceberg into Sydney Harbour? And I said, Jerry, you're brilliant. So I quickly rang up a friend of mine and we hired a huge Stanards barge <laughs> and we got plastic sheeting and shaving cream and uh, firefighting foam. And uh, we towed the iceberg or the fake, the the huge barge out through Sydney Heads on the Friday night before April Fool's Day, and I'd sent out a press release and saying the iceberg's coming. Now I, I didn't say it's coming tomorrow because that would be too obvious. It was April Fool's Day, so I said the iceberg's coming. It's coming next week. It's halfway up the coast, and everyone believed it. The ABC rang me and they wanted to charter a plane out to go and film the iceberg, which didn't exist, of course. Well, you must anyway, have some Saturday morning of April the 1st, we towed the iceberg in through Sydney Harbour and we were really lucky. We, we, it, it was raining and misty morning and it really looked like an iceberg behind this tug. And I had about a couple of hundred staff working for me at the time, so I gave them a list of every radio, TV station and newspaper. And I said, you've got to get up at dawn on Saturday morning, April Fool's Day, and ring up these numbers and say, what's that coming through the heads? It looks like an iceberg. So, all the switchboards jammed on the, on the media, and, and they knew something big was happening. And in the end, we had thousands of people coming down to the headlands as we towed the iceberg up to the Opera House. And then, when we got to the Opera House, we uncovered the April Fool's joke by pulling back the white sheeting and showing that it was just a barge underneath.
1: Brilliant. Now, Dick, would that stunt fly today? Yes, if it was something new and it had to be, you couldn't do the same thing
0: again. And that gave us publicity right around the world. And even today, if you look up the world's greatest hoaxes, it's in the top 10, it's normally number three. (laughs) And the whole thing cost me $1,200 to hire the barge and to pay my friend Hans Solstrott to set it up, $1,200, and it probably gave me a million dollars worth of advertising. Of course, right around Australia, on newspapers, in TV, but right around the world. And I was trying to get the agency for my, uh, the CB radios, Midland CB radios from America. And when I went to see the president of the company, he said, you're the chap who tied the iceberg into Sydney Harbour. And so he gave me the agency. So it, it really helped.
1: How important is marketing?
0: Marketing in my life was incredibly important. And I became quite famous as Dick Smith, I did other things, I bought in a petrol-powered pogo stick and told the media that I was going to sell them to housewives and <laughs> they'd all go shopping on their petrol-powered pogo sticks. It was totally ridiculous, but the media ran articles about it. I then, I jumped a double-decker bus over 17 motorbikes and uh, that was because Evil Knievel at the time was jumping his motorbike over That's right. 15 double-decker buses. And and I thought, well, I can't, I told, them, I told the media I can't ride a motorbike which I could but I said I can't so I'm going to do the reverse I'm going to jump a double-decker bus over 17 motorbikes which which we did we set up a ramp at the Sydney Motor Show and jumped the huge double-decker bus I was standing on the back hanging on as the bus conductor and when the bus came (laughs) down after it crashed over the motorbikes it I really got thrown to the floor and it hurt me but once again publicity all around the world and so all those ideas just came from looking at what other people were doing and thinking, how could I get some publicity?
1: Always led to generation of revenue as a result.
0: Yes, definitely. When I did these funny things, that uh, I ended up getting more publicity. I also ended up a regular on the Don Lane show. Remember yeah, the Don I remember Lane, Don Lane show? Yeah. Well, I used to get invited down to that because they thought I was a bit of a character, and I'd take down the latest gadget. I had a beer-powered radio, <laughs> and uh, all the various different things, and. I'd end up on the Don Lane show. Now, Kerry Packer would pay me to fly down to Melbourne, stay at the Top Hotel, appear on the show, and I got this publicity for Dick Smith. And, of course, the business was called Dick Smith Electronics. So before long, people knew me right around Australia. And so as I started opening up more branches, people knew who Dick Smith was.
1: So you made the move into retail, Dick. So you started small and then you're expanding. How challenging is it to run a retail operation?
0: It's very challenging to expand. To to be a small businessman, a small businesswoman, it's relatively simple. But if you want to start running, say, 30 or 40 shops, that requires systems to be put in place. And that's what I was really good at, getting the systems in or putting on the people who were good at putting the systems. And uh, I think when I sold to Woolworths, we had about 35 or 36 shops. Yep. And that meant 36 managers. But they were not managers in the way that they were – creating management style. We had a very disciplined, we copied McDonald's, and I even got the uh, the man who started McDonald's in Australia, Peter Ritchie, I got him on the Dick Smith board for his advice. And I thought, if you can make money out of hamburgers, wow, that must be a low overhead operation. And he taught me how you have disciplined systems, which we copied for Dick Smith Electronics. And so the McDonald's formula was used at Dick Smith's. And I always say to people, The best success force in life is to copy the success of others. And just as I did that with Lafayette Electronics in in America, I copied uh, McDonald's and copied anyone I thought who was doing it better. I just went out and copied their systems.
1: So you don't proclaim to be an originator then?
0: No, I originated very little, a few things. I mean, towing the iceberg and jumping the (laughs) double-decker bus were original things, but just about everything else, I just copied the success of others and uh, asked advice all the time. Success force, I tell people, ask advice, surround yourself with capable people, and copy the success of others. There's the,
1: the secret to success, the three points. And what's the best advice you reckon you've received? The
0: best advice I've ever received, oh, well, financial advice, mm-hmm. was that whenever I rented a building, was to try and get a uh, an option to purchase the building. Even before Pip and I, my wife and I, had bought a house, we it opened at Gore Hill in an old chocolate factory in Northern Sydney suburb. And when I went to rent the building, my advisor who I was asking advice from said, Oh, you must get an option to purchase. And I just laughed at it. I said, you know, I don't even have enough money to buy a house. How could I have enough money to buy this building, which was $60,000. But he convinced me into getting the option to purchase. And he said, from now on, whenever you rent a building, try and get an option to purchase and try and buy it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And uh, that's, in fact, what's made me most of my money. Most people think I made my money out of electronics and publishing, but, in fact, I made most of my my money out of commercial property purchases because whenever I rented a shop, I would try and get an option to purchase. Within the two or three years, I would then turn that option into borrow the money from a finance company and buy the building. And, of course, you don't have to be very bright to have been able to make money out of property in Australia in the last 40 or 50 years property's gone up so
1: much. You told us about your best advice, Dick, but what's been the, arguably some of the worst advice you've received?
0: Yeah, I've had, see, when you ask advice, that's my success formula, ask advice all the time, you get a lot of wrong advice, so you've got to use common sense. Mm -hmm. I I did take, once one of my staff members said to me, oh, Dick, we don't sell high-quality products like Sony, and we should have the best high-quality products in stock, and I was a bit suspicious because I used to sell the lowest-priced item but still had that good 50% margin. So I bought in some Sony products, and we had them for about 12 months, and I was sensible enough to decide, yes, we sold a lot of them, but the margin, the profit margin was about 20%, and also there was lots of competition. And, in fact, by the time I sold Dick Smith Electronics to Woolworths, I basically had no famous brands. All of the brands were Dick Smith brands. And so I didn't have to compete with the discount houses like Harvey Norman at the time that were selling everything cheaper. So I could then keep that average margin of 50%. And that was a really good way of making a dollar.
1: Yeah, but Woolworths buying your name, aren't they? So your your name had been, that will establish the next industry in society, hadn't it? Exactly right.
0: Yeah, Woolworths bought the name. They bought Dick Smith Electronics. And uh, I never regretted that because they ran it for 27 years and made enormous profits, they ended up doing $1.7 billion turnover a year and uh, the mistake they made, when I sold it to them, I think I had about 30 shops and I said there's potential to have 100 shops because we sell to electronic enthusiasts. Well, Woolworths, they opened 100 shops, then they went up to wait for it, 350 shops. And they started, they changed the formula, they started selling low-margin items like TV sets and uh telephones and things like that. And uh, then they couldn't get eternal growth because they're a public company. They had to have eternal growth. And once they got to 350 shops, they couldn't get the growth anymore. They then sold the business to Anchorage Capital, That's right. yeah, who, yeah, as yeah. the media reported, was the greatest equity heist of all time. And Anchorage, after three years, had sent it broke it went broke and lost hundreds of millions of dollars of people's money, which was really sad.
1: How does that feel? When you see your name going down, not you know you've moved on obviously, but that it didn't feel it,
0: it didn't feel good. Of course, by then most people knew that I'd sold it twenty seven years before, so it didn't really affect my name at all. But I was really disappointed that the company was destroyed. And uh, but I'm very proud. I people stop me in the street all the time and they say, "Dick, I started my career at Dick Smith Electronics. I learned everything, and I've done very well since then." So that makes me feel good.
1: You always been a risk taker, Dick.
0: Yes, I've always been a risk taker. I call myself a responsible risk taker. I learned risk taking in the Scouts, and uh, when I was very young, 20 years of age, I organised an expedition to sail from Sydney Harbour out to near Lord Howe Island in the Tasman Sea Mm. and try and climb Ball's Pyramid, the highest ceasefire in the world. It's three times the height of our TV towers, and it just goes straight out of the ocean. And I and my other climbers, we swam ashore and grabbed hold of a ledge and then tried to climb ourselves up, and that particular time we only got two-thirds of the way up. I then went back 10 years later and got to the top of Boar's Pyramid. So with rock climbing and canyoning and canoeing, I was a risk-taker. And then in business, I've never been such a risk-taker because I started off with little, $610. I was living at home with my parents, and so even if I'd lost all the money, it was never going to be a great amount because I didn't have
1: much in the first place. What did you sell then, Dick? If things were going so well, the brand was—I guess that's still you know, so popular. You're, you know, everybody knew who you were. So, what did you sell?
0: Yeah, it's amazing, and uh, I cover this in the book because it's an important point. When it got to about a turnover of, I think, about thirty-six million, and I had hundreds of staff, which I didn't know all the staff, and I was making more money than I could ever spend and made. The year we sold to Woolworth, it made $8 million net profit. Yeah, wow. So even if I paid the for 45 cents in the dollar tax, I had over $4 million to spend. And I just simply didn't want any more money. And so I said, I don't like this business. It's too big. I don't know, know everyone anymore. And I'm going to get the money and buy a few more commercial buildings and then go off adventuring. And someone said to me, Dick, don't sell. You could become another Rupert Murdoch. You could take the formula to England and to America And the catalog and the electronic components and become a billionaire. And uh, it just didn't interest me. I thought $25 million, which is what I got for Woolworths. I thought, that's enough. I'll never need more than that. I still had quite a few buildings that I'd bought. And so I was very happy to sell. And then, of course, I started Australian Geographic, which was a business in itself, which I didn't think would happen.
1: I'll ask you about that in a second, Dick. One other last thing on the marketing point, which I found really interesting. You actually put yourself into adverts. As the owner, you're, you're. I actually see you in in the TV commercials, dancing around, singing songs, and all sorts of stuff. Now, some Americans had done that a little bit earlier, but but it's still, it's very new, wasn't it?
0: Yes, and it, but it was for asking advice, and uh, I I was going to call the business Altronics. and uh, my cousin's husband said to me, "What? He was in advertising. He said, with a name like Dick Smith, <laughs> you've got to call it Dick Smith Electronics." And I said, "No, no, no," I said. I want to install car radios into Mercedes Benzes and top quality cars. No one will come to someone called Dick Smith, such a common name. And he said, no, he said, it's the best name for advertising you could ever have. And so he talked me into it. And so I changed the name from Alltronics to Dick Smith Electronics. And, of course, then I realised I could get all this free publicity on TV. And uh, by doing funny things, I imported a petrol-powered pogo stick from the USA and, got on channel nine with that and then ended up on the today show. And from then on, because I could come up with the latest electronic gizmos, I'd get free TV coverage. And And, and they knew it was Dick Smith of Dick Smith Electronics. And so it was a lay down was there to get the publicity.
1: Fair enough. All right. So you make your dough. You don't want to become a billionaire. You've got other things to do in life. And you said about the next part, I guess, the adventure and philanthropy, you want to talk us through what was top of the list?
0: Oh well, top of the list of when it comes to adventure was flying solo around the world in a helicopter. I mean, when I started the business Dixon Electronics, I never thought I'd even learn to fly, let alone own my own helicopter. But as I started to do well in business, I someone taught me to going out on early mornings and learning how to fly a fixed wing plane, which I did. Never much good at it. And one day I was flying my fixed wing plane, and a helicopter came and landed nearby. And I walked over to the pilot and I said how come you're flying when the weather's so bad? You know, all the other planes are grounded. And he he said to me, oh, he said, with a helicopter, you just fly under the cloud, and if ever the cloud gets too low, you land and have a cup of tea with somebody. And my mouth just dropped open. I thought, wow, that's my type of flying. So I got back to the Dick Smith head office, and I looked up the phone book in those days, and
1: there was the Bell
0: Helicopter Company, and I rang them up and how much is a helicopter? They said it's about 200 grand. So I said, I want one. So I bought a helicopter. Then I had to learn to fly it and I found it really hard to learn to fly. But I eventually got the knack of it. So it was just like an extension of my body. It was like a magic carpet and I used it to go to work every day. I put a helipad in at the Dick Smith building at North Ride and a helipad at home. And then I flew it around Australia with my kids. We went up the Canning Stock route and everywhere by helicopter. And then one day I thought, gee, you could fly one of these things around the world and no one had ever done that. No what, one is, thought what, a it, helicopter.
1: what is that? 55,000 k's, isn't it? Is that right? Around the world, it's
0: 24,000 nautical miles at the equator, so it's about 48,000 kilometers at the equator. So not, not a light trip then? It's a long line helicopter and <laughs> most people thought helicopters in those days were used by TV crews just to fly across cities, but I worked out. In my Bell jet range, I could put a huge tank in the back where the passengers normally go, Mm -hmm. and I could get about 600 nautical miles. That's about 1,200 kilometres range. And then I got out the Atlas and I worked out that in just about all places there were towns you could go to where you could get fuel. And so I rang up the Bell helicopter company and said, I'm going to buy a new helicopter from you in America, and I'm going to try and fly it, first of all, from America to England across the Atlantic, never been done before, Mm -hmm. and then from England to Australia. And then I was going to try and fly from Australia back to the factory in America, which would be right around the world solo. And I managed to do that. It was very risky, but it was an incredibly exciting thing to do and more exciting than sitting in my office running Dixon Electronics.
1: What goes through your mind when you're sitting there above the Pacific or above the Atlantic?
0: Uh, Frightened. I I, I, visualized the flight. in in good weather, but I made the mistake of I'd arranged through the Australian Prime Minister that Prince Charles should meet me at Balmoral Castle in Scotland when I flew the Atlantic. But that unfortunately gave me a date. I had to be there on this certain date in August of 1982 and uh, I ended up flying the Atlantic in terrible weather to try and keep my appointment with Prince Charles. And at one stage I was halfway between Greenland and Iceland and the weather was so bad I thought... I'm looking down at the ocean, Only a single little engine helicopter. I had a little life jacket on and I had a little life raft sitting beside me in the cockpit. And I'm looking down on the ocean where there's a 40-knot gale just taking bits of icebergs and icy bits, flying it along the water. And I knew that if I had an engine failure, the chance of me living would be very small. Mm. So I decided that I'd turn around and go back to Greenland because the weather was so bad. But when I turned the helicopter the weather had closed in behind me. Right. So here I was orbiting halfway between Greenland and Iceland, halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, and absolutely terrified in flight. So here I was halfway between Greenland and Iceland, and uh, eventually I managed to get through to Iceland, weaving my way through snow showers in very bad visibility, way down low over the ocean, being frightened as hell. I remember thinking if I get to Iceland alive, I'm going to put the helicopter on a ship and ship it home. But when I did actually get there, I got a bit more confidence and kept on going like that and eventually got right around the world. And what did
1: the prince say to you when you turned up?
0: Prince Charles was ecstatic because I got there on time. I was ecstatic too, and he'd learned to fly helicopters. He couldn't believe how tiny my helicopter was and (laughs) that I'd flown the Atlantic, first solo to do that, first person in the world to get across the Atlantic solo in a helicopter. He was incredibly friendly. He spent half an hour with us and then... I went on my way from Scotland down to London and landed on the helipad right in the Thames River, which was really exciting.
1: What did you learn about yourself, Dick, when you're sitting there in you know, in a helicopter, as you say, navigating away? A lot of thoughts go through your mind. So what are you thinking about yourself?
0: I learned that I would do things which were too risky. And uh, that flying across the Atlantic silo and helicopter was, when I look back on it, was too risky. I sort of had these limitations on the level of risk. I was totally dependent on the reliability of that one little turbine engine that it kept going because even though theoretically I had a life jacket, looking down on that freezing ocean, I realised that the helicopter would sink in about 30 seconds and that the chance of me living was very small. So I learned that my planning of things was sort of above the grade of my what I could actually do. Mm-hmm. And I was very surprised myself that I ended up finishing that flight around the world because... The last stage required landing on a ship between Japan and Alaska. The Russians wouldn't let me land there, and so I put three drums of fuel on a container ship that was heading from Japan to Seattle, and when it was halfway across the Pacific Ocean, I took off in my little tiny helicopter from Japan, flew for seven hours, found the ship, which was lucky because it was before GPS, and managed to find the ship, landed on the deck, and it was rolling left and right, and Managed to get pumped the fuel in and then took off again, and flew to Alaska. And it's the riskiest thing. It's further than from Sydney to Auckland in a tiny little helicopter. So I was lucky to get away with it.
1: So what what is your um your average sort of leg flying, time wise? I'm sort of working about your fatigue and and how you're hanging yeah, in there.
0: The average leg, the longest leg, was about seven hours, but normally about five or six hours. And uh, in most cases, other than crossing the Pacific Ocean, you can get fuel about every. 500 nautical miles. That's about every 1,000 kilometers, and so that allowed me to do the flight.
1: When you finally landed, what was the actual feeling?
0: It was the most exciting thing when I finally got back to Fort Worth in Texas, where I'd started. It took me a year to go right around the world, and I was just incredibly excited. I couldn't believe that I got away with it. Really, that that I was still alive, and uh, I felt that I'd been quite irresponsible to my young wife and our two little girls in doing that flight because there was a very good chance I could have lost my life. Luckily I didn't, the engine kept going and I managed to get through the bad weather bits, but I felt as if I was quite irresponsible and that I shouldn't have done it.
1: what did you learn about the world, Dick? You were seeing it from a different perspective. Now this was the most
0: incredible thing. This was the days before we'd heard about climate change, but when I flew around the world at 500 feet altitude in a helicopter, it was like a magic carpet seeing the world from above but I realised the incredible amount of damage we'd done to it. I basically saw no wilderness. It was just smog and cities and huge numbers of buildings and people crammed in high-rise, and even in the jungle areas, they were all slash and burning it because the population was so great. And I came back thinking, wow, I can't believe the damage we're doing to the world, and that's having no great effect. And, of course, a decade later, people started talking about climate change and the fact that, the world is not really designed to hold seven billion people. And if we keep with our seven billion or increasing it to eleven or twelve billion, we're going to be in real problems. That's what I learned.
1: Dick, the next venture was in publishing. The Australian Geographic. And I also I think you bought or am I right? The Australian Encyclopedia as well.
0: Yes, exactly right. Yeah, my next venture. So I thought when I sold Dick Smith Electronics, I got plenty of money. I'd put it into commercial properties. I really didn't need to work again. So, but I thought I'd start a geographical magazine mainly to change my image. The media made out that I was this sort of uh, media tart who just wanted to get publicity on everything, and I had no real brains myself about, especially the environment, which I loved. And as I'd mentioned to you earlier on in this interview, I'd thought of joining the national parks and becoming a park ranger because I love the out of doors through my scouting activities. And so I thought, I'll start a magazine called Australian Geographic that is mainly used to change my image to show that I have environmental concerns. The magazine, in fact, did incredibly well, and we ended up with 200,000 subscribers. It was making millions of dollars a year in profit, and we bought the Australian encyclopedia and brought it back to Australia, and it was a complete fluke as far as I was concerned that I ended up with another business that ended up far too big, and I sold that to Fairfax for over $40 million, so I was lucky twice around.
1: Do you think Australians are proud to be Australian? Do you reckon we, I don't know, hold ourselves up enough? We beat ourselves up a lot.
0: Yeah, we do. Well, that's the Australian way, but look, we know most Aussies, eight out of ten Aussies would know that we are some of the most fortunate people on earth, and we are very, very lucky people. I won the Lottery of Life. I was born in the 1940s in Australia, and I was able to you know, create three businesses and do that because it's such a fantastic
1: country. And the third business was the, was that the food business, Dick?
0: Yeah, yeah. Dick Smith Foods was a business. I copied Paul Newman first. He's, he ran his food company for charity. And so I thought that's a good idea. I've got enough money. And so we managed to make profits of about $11 million from Dick Smith Foods, which was went to Australian charities. So it allowed me to do something in my old age that was helping other people, not just myself. What does money mean to you, Dick? Well, it gives you the most incredible freedom. Uh, one of my things with money is it gives me freedom to speak my mind. I One day I asked my solicitor, what is the greatest payout that's been made for defamation? And he told me what it was at the time. It wasn't that high. And I thought, well, I can afford that. That means I can say anything. So I've been able to stand up for people and say things that other people would think, oh, I might lose my house if I get sued for saying that. So it's given me the freedom to be able to have freedom of speech in this incredible country that our forefathers thought that we should have.
1: And on just on that, Dick, where do you think you've been most prominent in standing up for certain people's rights? Well,
0: uh, I, earlier on, I was prominent in getting rid of cigarette advertising that was directed at young kids. Uh, back when I started Dixmet Electronics, the women's magazines were full of cigarette ads, Peter Jackson's, you know. 25s, you're laughing with a picture of a beautiful young 15-year-old girl sitting on a bench with her boyfriend holding a cigarette towards her lips. And uh, the cigarette companies were desperate because less adults were smoking, so they had to get young teenagers in and get them addicted. And so one of the best things I ever worked on, it was a campaign to get the government to ban cigarette advertising that was directed at children and I managed to succeed at that. So that was something that gave me great satisfaction.
1: As a person, Dick, where do you take the time to actually think?
0: Oh, I have plenty of time to think. I, I still go bushwalking and I, I walk every day in the bush and I that's when I dream and think about all the big things I could be doing. I've been five times around the world by air, so I've seen the most incredible sights. I've also driven around the world with my wife, including right across Russia, Siberia, and uh, just the most amazing trip that you could ever imagine and always having a smile on our face and being looked after by people even when we broke down in the middle of the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. So I've seen some most incredible sights and I've been very lucky. So does much worry you then, Dick? Uh well, I'd love to finish the aviation reform I started. That's my great failure. I wanted Australia to be a leader in the world in flight training and in recreational aviation, general aviation, but unfortunately I failed at that one. Not that it affected me. I can afford the high costs of flying and so it doesn't affect me personally, but it was a failure when I couldn't bring in some of the best rules from around the world so we could be the leaders.
1: As an entrepreneur and as a businessman and also as an adventurer, how do you actually look for opportunities? I know you say you seek advice, but how do you look for opportunities? That's the first thing. And have you got this I don't know gut instinct that you can say, I know that's going to make money? Can you feel it? Is that part of your DNA? Yeah.
0: So I think, first of all, how do you come up with ideas? I'd, I'd advise a young person Buy yourself an air ticket, cheapest air ticket, and go around the world and look what's happening in other countries and then copy that because that's basically what I did with the electronics and also with Australian Geographic. I based it on National Geographic. So get yourself a cheap air ticket, go around the world and see what's happening. Of course, these days you can see lots of it on Google, so it's easier in many ways. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would suggest you, you do. Now, when it comes to a gut instinct, well, I didn't know that I was good at making money when I was young, but I believe. Every person's good at something. And I was so hopeless at school that I really had an inferiority complex and I thought I was a failure. And it was only when I was about 25 years of age and my accountant said, Dick, you have made more money than the Prime Minister of Australia this year. And they were in the days when the Prime Minister got about 30 grand a year. Yep. I couldn't believe it. I said, how have I done that? And he, he explained to me that with the provisional tax I'd paid and the extra stock I had, that I'd done okay. So I suddenly realised that I was good at one thing and that was making money. And you're right, I do have a, a person who's good at making money who's an entrepreneur, has sort of a gut feeling about it. It must be almost inbuilt that you think, oh, there's potential with that. But I also go back to my number one success force, I copy the success of others, look around on what someone else has done. Very little is new in this world, and especially if you go overseas and see what someone's doing and then bring the idea here to Australia and do it but well,
1: you can do very well okay alright so you talk about also when I've read about you you worked exceptionally hard right so you didn't cut corners obviously you can't do that and get to the top but what's the magic of inspiring others Dick you know you can't do it by yourself you, yes you've done the hard yard you finally find these people Was it every third person seems to be the right one the other two weren't, weren't up to it but how do you inspire me to stick around and work with Dick Smith there's, there's competitors down the road don't forget
0: that's a very good question. How do you inspire others? How do you enthuse them to yeah. perform? And I was really good at that. And how do you keep them working for you? Yeah. Well, the main, the main thing was to enthuse them. Once you've got a good person, you keep telling them they're good because they are. And you keep saying how much you need them. And uh, you make it pretty clear that the last thing you want them to do is to leave. You have to pay them well, which I always did. I also, my top people I had gave them bonuses depending on the profit of the business. And, uh, the main person who came and worked for me and made me lots of my money, I did a deal with him. So when we sold Australian Geographic, he got a proportion of the profit that we made. And uh, that, of course, motivated him tremendously. But first of all, getting the right people is the hard part, and that can take up to two or three people in the job to get the right one. Keeping them, I've always found to be quite easy. You just enthuse them and say, how good you are and how good we're doing because of you. And I made it clear how much I needed them and I paid them considerably more than I get from someone else. And I was very proud that I kept the good people and they're still friends of mine today. All of my good people are still friends of mine today. And that's really good.
1: Yeah. And how do you lead Dick? Are you one of these guys who walks the floor nonstop?
0: Yeah. Well, I lead by being very hands-on. I'm a micromanager and uh, always was hands-on, but then when I expanded, say, Australian Geographic, and we ended up once again, just as with Dixlet Electronics, we had Australian Geographic nature shops all around Australia, where well, you can't beat every shop at every time, so you put in the systems to place that make that work and then get competent staff to run the systems. I also, and you mentioned this before, I put a lot of hard work in. Nothing replaces the success forces of asking advice and surrounding yourself with capable people and then putting in, Lots of hard work, and that's really important.
1: And hard work, what what was the average day, Dick, in those days?
0: Well, in those days, I'd be working uh, 60 to 80 hours a week, if that's possible. I just, the whole life in the early days of getting the business going was to work really hard. But once I got the business going and I was married with kids, I made sure that I spent lots of time with my family. I always spent breakfast and dinner with our kids, and uh, I'm really glad I did that. I never... I've never had to regret thinking I didn't grow up with my children. I've always been able to do that. I've had the same wife for 53 years and the children are from one family. So what's success then, Dick? Success is placing yourself in a position where you have the freedom to do what you want to do. And so that's how I describe success. I'll say it again. It's placing yourself in a position where you have the freedom to do what you want to do. And that could mean you could be a park ranger with the national parks and you're doing what you love doing, so you're successful. Or it could be that you've made lots of money and been able to give a few dollars away, and but also have plenty of money to go on adventures and do the things you want to do.
1: And are you surprised by how many people don't go out and seek that success?
0: Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, success, of course, if, you, if you've made lots of money, that gives you the freedom to do things that you can't necessarily do if you don't have money. And Having that ability to make lots of money is something that's almost ingrained. You're either an entrepreneur or if you're not. And so some people are very lucky and they have that and they can do really well. But there's lots of successful people around who have just earned wages all their lives and mm. but they've had incredibly fulfilling lives and brought up good families and had good relationships. And so you can be successful without making lots of money.
1: So you recently penned a book. Why did you do it?
0: Well, I, I wrote my book last year in lockup because I – People have been asking me over the years, when are you going to write your life story? And with the COVID, I was locked up here at my house at Terry Hills. And so I sat down in front of the computer and then with, once again, lots of help from other good writers, I wrote An Adventurous Life. And I'm really proud because it's put there, It's it's got a message there, especially for young entrepreneurs and for parents and grandparents of kids and grandchildren who are hopeless at school, you can get hope. And... Uh, I've been able to explain how I did well in this incredible country and also mention some of my thoughts about how we should have a population plan and we shouldn't just grow so we end up with 100 million people and hardly anyone can afford a house to live in.
1: And when you were drafting and writing your, your book, Dick, did anything come to you as a revelation?
0: When I wrote the book, the revelation was just how incredibly lucky I'd be. I mean, for example, I've done five flights around the world, three of them in single-engine aircraft, And I'm still alive in many of those flights. If the engine had failed halfway across the Indian Ocean or down near the South Pole, I wouldn't be here. So I realised how incredibly lucky I've been. I owe my life in many ways to North American technology, the reliability of modern aircraft, and uh, that was a wonderful thing. I've also mentioned in my book how lucky I've been to marry my girlfriend when she was my fiancé at 19 years of age, Pip, and uh, we're still happily married 53 years later. That was quite amazing because you don't know how people are going to change over the years. Uh, people, luckily, I met her through the Girl Guides and she was into the out of doors and what I call responsible risk-taking and adventuring. And she allowed me to go flying around the world in a single-engine helicopter and risking my life and knowing in many ways that I mightn't come back.
1: Yeah, and you were shot at a couple of times too, weren't you?
0: Yes, in Greenland, I got two bullet holes in the helicopter. So all of these things that can happen. But the fortunate thing was that the weather always turned out okay in the end. I got into some atrocious weather, but just when I was going to have to ditch the aircraft in the ocean and be swimming around in my life jacket, the weather improves and I managed to get through. I'm not a religious person, but you somehow think something, someone was helping me.
1: What's the next big adventure, Dick? Oh, well,
0: no big adventure at the moment. I'm... Uh, Glad that I've written my book. I think that's important. Hopefully, it will motivate people. Mm-hmm. And I'm in retirement. I still do lots of exercising. I went and renewed my instrument rating flying yesterday. That's quite a hard instrument rating for single pilots. Yep. And I'm glad I've done that at 77 years of age. Yep. And so I'm very lucky. I'm just going to keep living my life. My wife and I are halfway through a drive around Australia. We've done it once anti clockwise, we're now doing it clockwise. Our vehicle at the moment is locked up in Darwin, but once the wet season's over, we'll get back and head across the Savannah way into Queensland, going by all the back roads and just seeing this wonderful country as it is.
1: Now, look, I just want to take you back on something. I thought you said earlier that when you came back after flying your helicopter, you realised, my God, that was incredibly risky and I shouldn't do that again. Didn't you jump in a couple of air balloons and take a few big risks as well, not a few years later? And did you lose your memory or something, did you?
0: You're absolutely right. I've, when I came back from the helicopter flight in 1983, I thought I shouldn't be taking risks like that. That's but that right. only lasted about a couple of months, and I then ended it up with <laughs> no, five kidding. flights of total around the world, and and two very risky balloon flights. Balloon flights are the riskiest things you can do because you're completely out of control. One of my flights was from uh, Carnarvon in the west coast of Australia right across to Service Paradise on the east coast. At one stage. This little fragile balloon was doing, wait for it, 160 kilometres an hour. We're in this little gondola. We're over, I think it was near Cobar at the time or Broken Hill, and the GPS said we're doing 160 kilometres an hour. We're at about 22,000 feet on oxygen masts, and we knew that the only way we could land the balloon safely was less than about 20 kilometres of wind, otherwise the gondola would be smashed apart as we got across the Great Dividing Range and we started to descend, I couldn't believe it. I looked down on the Clarence River and there was no wind. And we took off without any wind, flew at 160 kilometres an hour and 43 hours later descended down across the Dividing Range and landed near Tabulum on the east coast, the most amazing flight. Then after doing that, I decided I'd try and fly a balloon from Australia to New Zealand.
1: Oh, again, you're not taking any more risk, Dick. You're uh, you're giving (laughs) up the
0: risk again, eh? Yeah, well, this was just another risk. I mean, I somehow talked people into letting me do it. I said, (laughs) I've been safe so far. Maybe I'll be okay this time. What happened was John Singleton bet me that you couldn't fly from New Zealand to Australia. And I said, John, that's impossible. Balloons fly with the wind, and all the winds are westerlies around the world. So you've got to fly from west to east. But he said, oh, I'll bet you hundred grand you can't go the other way. So I rang up the Met department and they looked at their computer and they said, look, if you flew very low just skimming the waves about twice a year, you could probably do it. You might be able to get away with it. So beauty, I shipped the balloon to New Zealand and had it stored there on the North Island. And one day the Met department rang me up and they said, we reckon if you leave tonight you'll uh, be able to get across from New Zealand to Australia, uh, flying in the southeasterly trade winds. And so I jumped into my jet, flew to New Zealand, jumped into the balloon, took off and flew across, and you wouldn't believe it, we came in on the beach at Urunga, just north of, uh, of Ballina. And as we came in, we lowered the gondola down onto a surf and surfed The gondola in on the way (laughs) and landed on the sand of the beach, having flown from New Zealand to Australia against the winds. You've got to make an entrance. It was a fantastic entrance and, uh, once again, risky. Uh, Lots of things can go wrong, but flying balloons, I said to Pip, I won't do any more balloon flying. And balloon flying early mornings or late in the evening is very safe. It's a wonderful tourist thing to do. But to fly a balloon thousands of kilometres over a country where you're doing high speeds up in the jet stream, that's a highly risky activity.
1: You know, when you're flying over the um, the polar caps, is it just the serenity that you enjoy? You know, you're not getting, yeah, you're not so, getting buzzed yeah, by yeah, mobile yes. phones, you're not getting distracted by uh, anything? Yes,
0: but both poles are very different. I've been to each pole twice. The South Pole is 9,000 feet high. That's higher than that. Kosciuszko. You're up on a huge ice cap, and there's a large American base there so you can go and get a cup of coffee. That's the South Pole. The North Pole, wow, it's the complete opposite. It's just floating ice. It's about a metre thick ice on the polar ocean. It's moving and cracking and crunching and when I got there in the helicopter, I remember on the second attempt to get to the pole, I'd landed on the ice pack and I'd put up my tent because the weather was so bad I couldn't see and about 3am in the morning, the ice started breaking up all around me and I grabbed my sleeping bag out of the tent, grabbed the tent, threw it in the back of a helicopter, jumped in, got the helicopter going and airborne and managed to fly about 60 miles just above the pressure ridges until I got to an island called Ward Hut Island and there was an old abandoned research hut. I managed to land there and sleep the night in the hut and safely. I was just got away with it.
1: Well, a couple of things which are interesting about some of your adventures, Dick, they don't all go to plan, which is, I guess is one part of a story. But you don't take no for an answer, do you?
0: No. Well, I I, I consider that I'm a responsible risk taker. And the fact that I'm still alive on my five flights around the world and my two balloon flights, I've never been delayed or caused search and rescue to come out. So I'm proud of that, that I haven't caused someone else to lose their life searching for me.
1: So what do you reckon drives Dick? What What actually drove him?
0: I don't know what drives me. It's just a, the... Uh, I've had it in since I was a young kid. I used to disappear. I'd come home from school and my only rule was Dick, be home by dark. And so I'd change out of my school uniform and I'd disappear by myself into the bush in the bushland around East Roseville, North of Sydney suburb at the time. And I've always been much of a loner. And I suppose that's why I've been okay on the solo flights. I don't mind being by myself and checking how you go by yourself. Of course, you haven't got anyone to ask any advice from when you're flying alone. And so that does make it a bit more difficult.
1: Also makes it a bit more exhilarating, doesn't it?
0: Yes. It gets the uh, adrenaline going. I'm a, I've got to admit, I'm an adrenaline junkie. It's my drug, the risk taking and knowing that I might get away with it. I might not. I mentioned in my book that after my adventures, I would, I'd be flying up the coast of New South Wales in my helicopter mm-hmm. and I'd be tending to turn right and head off across the ocean to see if I could get to New Zealand. And luckily I didn't attempt to do that because, as I mentioned, if you keep these adventures going too much, all of my heroes, people like Kingford Smith and Bert Hinkler, they all lost their lives because they kept pushing the risk and you have to learn one day to stop and that's why I hope I've learned to stop it.
1: So the most dangerous of all expeditions, Dick, when you thought you could see your eyes flashing before you, is that that period of time when you're landing to see the Prince, or is there anything else which was... One of those days where this is it.
0: I think the most dangerous I've ever had was trying to find the ship in the northern Pacific and it ran into a fog. I cover this in the book and I turned to head towards Russia, a little island, a volcano I could see sticking out of the cloud. But the Russians had threatened to shoot anyone down who flew in their airspace and, in fact, three months later in the same area, they shot the Korean 007 jet oh, yeah, and killed all the that. passengers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was just a few months after I'd been in the same airspace. So and I've been incredibly lucky, and uh, I don't underestimate that. I've been using good, reliable equipment, but I've been lucky as well.
1: Now, you've mentioned throughout this discussion, Dick, the Scouts. What impact have they had on your life?
0: Well, the Boy Scouts are the greatest youth leadership organisation in the world, and it's where I learned my leadership. You asked me about leadership with Dick Smith Electronics. I learned that in the Scouts and uh, I started off as a Cub at 8 and ended up as a Rover Scout at 23. I became the leader of the Rovers. I was called the Rover Mate. And that's where I learned my leadership. I mean, we had the most wonderful Scoutmasters and they still do today, really capable people who give their time for nothing, Mm. to train youth in leadership. And that's where I learned. I learned my original risk-taking with the Scouts, that, Original trip I went to Bull's Pyramid, sailing out to climb the sea spire in the world out near Lord Howe Island, was done with the Scouts. And so I've got a lot to, I owe to the Scouts, the most wonderful organisation. It also taught me to give back, to help, you know, the Scout, not to help other people at all times. That was ingrained in me. And so when I did financially well, I knew I had a responsibility to help other people and I've always tried to do that.
1: And Dick, when I do buy your book, What's the message you really want me to pick up on?
0: Yes, I think for anyone who buys the book, I want the message to be that if you're a young person or if you see a young person who's pretty hopeless and has an inferiority complex, give them a bit of a boost along and say, look, Dick Smith could do okay when he was completely hopeless at school and you can do okay. Well, you can follow in his footsteps. It's still possible today. You can do okay.
1: And if you're looking back at that young Dick at school, well, you did say you had the inferiority complex. What advice would you have given Dick now?
0: Well, if I knew back then, it's interesting, it would have been a great load off my mind because when I was young, I really thought I was a failure. And all my friends, see, I loved electronics and I built the first crystal set when I was eight and I built two valve radios. But then when I found I was hopeless academically, my friends went off and knew nothing about electronics. They went off to university and became electronic engineers. And to this day, I have no qualifications. But it was good. I, I, it would have been good if I could have known back then that all things would have turned out okay. It would have been a great relief off my mind because I was very worried then. I did feel inferior and did feel I was the failure. And that, I think, affected me when I was young.
1: On that, Dick, I very much enjoyed your company today. Thank you for making the time and to join us. Great, Greg, great to
0: be talking to you.
1: Well, you've been listening to No Limitations.